Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's the host of the Cold War channel uh, who is working with who is working with the infamous Kings and General, please welcome David. And this week, we are going to talk about the Korean War. And firstly, tell us about the Cold War Channel and, of course, Kings and Generals, what you do over there. Of course. Thank you very much for having me on, Erland. This is uh, it's a great, big, great pleasure to be here. Um, so the Cold War Channel, uh, YouTube channel, uh, the, with a, a mission and an idea to tell stories and sort of recount a history of the Cold War, starting from, ostensibly starting from 1945, but obviously nothing happens in a vacuum. There's lots of histories that that we have to tell that happened prior to 1945. And obviously there's there's stories that go through, that run through the entire time period. And and we very much look at the, the Cold War as not just the struggle that in sort of the the fight between the United States and the, the Soviet Union, uh, but more of a, a label for a time period. It's a, it's a label for realistically a period from the end of the Second World War uh, through to 1989, 1991. It's, there's, there's a lot of debate and discussion as to when the Cold War actually ends. Um, mm. But we try to look at that as more of a, it's a, it's a label for a time period. Obviously the, the, the ideological struggle that's happening throughout that is very much the backdrop, but not everything is directly related to it, but there's always that happening somewhere in the background. So we're trying to use the channel as, a, as an opportunity to tell a lot of the, the histories and the stories, some well-known and some not so well-known stories from the period between 1945 and 1991. And do you do more linear, so you shouldn't start from video one, or do you do like I do, like more freedom to... This this week we want to, for example, talk about the Vietnam War, or this time next week this will be the Afghan War. You do from like you said from nineteen forty five until nineteen ninety one. We're we're coming up on our fourth year of, uh, mm-hmm. of putting out weekly videos. Um, when we first started, it was it was very much envisioned that it would be a quite a linear storytelling, um, and it would be you know not exactly like Great War style, like week on week, like you know the Cold War week by week, not really that notion at all because the channel would then last forever Mm. um but uh we sort of tried to stick to a rough timeline but in recent sort of over the last 12 months or so we've sort of we're taking a bit of a step back from that and trying to hit more of the idea where we hit major milestones in a chronological fashion but some of the smaller stories that we'll pick from different time periods and we'll jump around a little bit more uh, and that's just to uh, to keep more of a broad a broad set of subjects that we can work with, mm. and you know obviously audience interest and things like that. Uh, but it's 
in terms of how they get written, they are very much, they reference back to prior episodes that we've done. So starting from episode one and watching forward is always the, uh, would always be the preferred method. Although please do forgive us for uh, the, the quality on some of the earlier episodes when mm -hmm. we were still figuring out, you know, video quality and sound quality and editing quality and things like that. We were still kind of getting our feet at that point. So that's... So, so we are going to talk about one of the early parts of the Troll War this time, which is the Korean War, as we mentioned in the beginning. And as you know, we got to start after 1945 because as you know, Korea was a part of the Japanese Empire. But they collapsed, of course, after they chose the wrong side, the Axis powers, and, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki was kind of a, the end game of the Japanese Empire. So, what, how did they end up dividing Korea? And let's talk about the rule between 1945 and 1950, before we go into the Korean War itself. Yeah, no problem. So, the Korean, I mean, the Korean Peninsula had been under the control of the Japanese for for formal control of the Japanese empire for decades, since the early part of the 20th century. Uh, with the collapse of the, the Japanese empire uh, in 1945, and realistically that, that surrender can be looked at very much as a collapse. It wasn't anticipated that it was gonna happen at the speed that it did. Uh, the, the effect of the, the, atomic, the atomic bombs, the Soviet invasion of Manchuria, all of that coming together really did affect things things moved very, very quickly in August and September of 1945. As a result of that, uh, there weren't a lot of allied troops in a position to be able to occupy Korea. There weren't any allied troops actually in position to be able to occupy Korea, the Korean Peninsula, uh, before the Soviets would have been able to do it. But there was an agreement that was made uh, that the, the Soviets would take the, the northern half and basically wait for the allies to occupy the southern half. There's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of conversation that, that happened around exactly why Stalin agreed to that as opposed to just taking it, but he did make that agreement. Believe it or not, and a lot of people don't believe this, but the history does uphold it. The Soviet Union was a fairly, was a legalistic state when they made an agreement it was always stick to the letter of the law, maybe not the spirit of the law, but to the letter of the law. So when they make that agreement, they were going to follow through with it. Immediately following, as the, the Soviets were occupying the northern uh, half of the peninsula to the 38th parallel, the, the Allies employed Japanese troops to maintain order in the south, mm -hmm. um, which is something that I think a lot of people, that's sort of, I'm not going to say that it gets forgotten, but it does get neglected in a lot of histories that the Japanese still had tens of thousands of troops stationed in the peninsula. Mm -hmm. And they remained there in a, as a security and an administrative function mm -hmm. uh, until more allied troops could uh, begin to, uh, to be landed on the peninsula to replace them. And that didn't have, that took, that took quite a while, realistically mm -hmm. speaking. And I would like to add as well that Stalin wasn't really interested in the Korean Peninsula. Of course, the Allies didn't know this at the time, but later it's, it's found out that he wasn't really that interested in North Korea or the Korean Peninsula at all. No, the, the Soviet interest in, especially at the time, the Soviet interest in Asia was relatively, relatively minor. It was kind of a backwater. You'd see that in sort of Mao, Mao's relationship to Stalin and Stalin's relationship back to Mao, especially. 
um, and then the, the way that the, the Civil War plays out uh, and then Chinese reliance on the Soviet Union and Chinese non-reliance on the Soviet Union, et cetera. So that all very much plays into the, the Korea story later towards 1949 and 1950. So, mm. so let's talk about the, the rule of both sides from North and South, because as we discussed, Earlier, it was you know, of the record. It was pretty shit. I mean, that's not sugarcoated. it. But even the south and the north, it was both shitty rulers. Yeah, they were both uh, dictators, d- dictatorships. I mean, that that's really what was established. Uh, I mean, obviously Kim Il Sung in the north, um, as a who have I mean Kim Il Sung took control over the space of a couple of years it was very much a that that's sovietization process that you that was seen in eastern europe was in a lot of ways i'm not going to say necessarily exactly replicated but there was certainly replication of the ideas of there's a triumvirate of power and then they sort of get picked off uh, as and one person emerges victorious and using rigged elections and using secret police and leveraging relationships um, from abroad to uh, to assume those those powers that's ultimately the i mean north korea was absolutely a dictatorship established as a totalitarian by 1948 that was all pretty much done and dusted and um kim il-sung as the the undisputed glorious leader of uh, mm-hmm. of north korea um, we all know how that runs and and that story just gets weirder and weirder as the mm. decades go on. Um, with it's a it's a communist dictatorship that's hereditary. Anyways, that's her, a hereditary communist dictatorship, mm. if you can believe that. Um, and things move away from communism, like the actual fundamentals fundamentals of communism, like talking Lenin Marxism. Things move away from that in North Korea at a remarkable speed in a lot of ways. Um, but I think what a lot of people forget and what you've mentioned here is that the South actually had a fairly, fairly crap form of government as well. They were absolutely set up as a, um, under a dictatorship. There was the, the pretense of, of democracy and of, you know, li- like this adherence to liberalism, but uh, because the, the government in South Korea was more than happy to tow the American line and to accept accept the money and stand in the, as a, a bulwark against communism, um, then it was perfectly fine that they were a uh, essentially a, a, a more right-leaning totalitarian dictatorship. Hmm. No, I, I believe that I would like to add this in the final fall of the British Empire by Pierce Brennan, and I believe it's relevant here as well, is that you have to remember that they've been under brutal Japanese dictatorship for decades, as you mentioned. So it's kind of fair to assume that that's kind of what they emulated. They rule on like African colonies, as you see today, has as well brutal dictatorships, a lot of them. Um, they emulated just out of what British rule was like. So I, I, I believe that's kind of what we see so with the Japanese, sorry, the Korean peninsula as well, that they just emulated basically what the Japanese had done. Would you, would you agree or would you? I'd say without a tradition of liberal democracy and a, mm. like a natural evolution of liberal democracy for that, those ideas to sort of to, to take root or to want to fall back towards. 
um, it's very easy to to say that yes, it was you know it's, this is just replacing one dictatorship with another, and that's the natural order of things. I think given the opportunity, there's absolutely no reason that any country can't assume a democratic democratic institutions, but it does take a lot more work when there isn't a, um, a, found, a strong foundation of legalism, of political liberty, um, of freedom of ideas, and um, what's the word I'm looking for, and a reasonable, peaceful transfer of power. Those things are all really important when it comes to um, to establishing democracy. Korea's by night, it took until 1988 for totalitarian, for dictatorship to sort of take a step back and actually go by the wayside in Korea. And by 1998, the dictatorships finally had stepped back and actual democracy was installed. And we could have a whole different conversation um, I can hear people yelling right now. There's a whole different conversation about how democratic is Korea still as a result of the influences of the, the Chai Bowl and like these uh, big, the, the, conglomer the industrial conglomerates and whatnot. Um, but it's certainly very different now than it was in 1988, than it was in 1968, than it was in 1940, 1948. So, so let's talk about uh, the crossing of the, of the 38th parallel of North Korea. What made them think that this was a good idea? We're going to cross and take over the Trump Peninsula as a whole. We're going to unite Korea again. So the, the North Koreans had floated the idea um, several times um, over the course of a, of a couple of years uh, leading up to the actual, the actual invasion. Uh, they'd floated the idea of wanting to invade the South, but obviously they needed support they couldn't do it on, they felt they couldn't do it on their own. They needed material support. They needed moral, I mean, moral support sounds kind of weird, but they needed, they were going to need international support on the international stage. And that was obviously going to come from, from Moscow, from Stalin. The detonation in 1949 of the Soviet atomic, the first of um, Joe one of the, the first Soviet atomic bomb that obviously sort of ended the U.S.'s nuclear monopoly which certainly would help to change the equation in the Soviet mind of how much, how much more of an equal they were suddenly to the United States, who was seen as the, the great protector. There had been statements, however, from the US suggesting that they weren't interested at all in Korea. They, had, they didn't see it as, as any kind of a hot spot, they didn't see it as any. There was no threat. It was. It was literally. It was a backwater at the State Department. Asia, Asia as a whole, um, was a backwater and a place where people who were unpopular with the current administration would sort of be shunted off to, and that's where they would sort of be stuck. Um, General MacArthur uh, was, as the, the the governor of Japan, the military governor of Japan was responsible for Korea. And by this time, uh, to be fair, and I will say this up front, I am no fan of Douglas MacArthur. I, I have a lot of issues with lots and lots of things that Douglas MacArthur did throughout his entire life and his career. Um, but some of his actions in the lead up to the Korean War and then even during the Korean War, I think were absolutely reprehensible. Some moments of brilliance when you get something like the landing at Incheon but in terms of his overall allowance of 
how things progressed in the war mm -hmm. in the early days, a lot of that is absolutely on Douglas MacArthur. Mm -hmm. He ignored Korea. He never had any interest. He never recognized as being anything, anything important. And the North Koreans knew this. Um, and the Soviets began to understand that. And as that understanding came about, and as the Soviets felt that they were much more on, on equal terms with the US, Stalin makes this decision that he's going to okay and accept a, uh, an invasion of, of South Korea on the condition that Kim Il-sung recognized that no direct Soviet sub military support would be provided. There wasn't going to be, there was not going to be Soviet troops to be committed to that in mm. the event that, uh, that, he, that North Korea got into trouble. This is where Mao stepped in, and there was always kind of a, a fraught relationship between Mao and Kim Il Sung. They were not uh, they were not buddy buddy, um, but Mao reluctantly agreed that in the event that things went completely sideways for the North Koreans, that the Chinese would intervene under certain conditions. That happened a little bit later um, from the time from the from the Soviet decision, but that was something that uh, that was eventually greenlighted as well. So. The North Koreans certainly felt that they were in a strong position where the U.S. was disinterested and they were going to be receiving support as they needed um, coming from, uh, from their erstwhile allies. So why did they choose, even though they knew that they were both terrible dictatorships, did they just view South Korea and the U.S., I mean, by, as a lesser evil, in a sense? Or was it simply they because they did not have the support of the... Soviet or China that uh, the U.S. chose to support itself. Uh, the U.S. the U.S. was supportive of the South. Do you mean after the invasion happened? And, yeah, yeah, something like yeah. Okay. That's it. it. It was an assault of of communism against against capitalism against a, mm. a an ally. It may have been an ally that they were ignoring completely and not really thinking much about, but it was absolutely this this ally that the, the enemy of communism was then attacking. Domestically in 1950, that's, I mean, you've got the McCarthy, McCarthyism is absolutely raging with HUAC and the rooting out the, the threat of communist spies, the atomic spies. Um, the, those trials are happening. That's, you know, it's Alger Hiss and uh, Whitaker and like all these, these cases, the Rosenbergs, like all these cases are coming to light at this time communism is definitely seen as this major this threat to to global and to american security um mm. and as that's happening obviously you get north korea that suddenly decides that they're going to invade um and there's this mad scramble to i can i can i swear on this uh of this course we might just Perfect. it's that holy shit moment like we've completely underestimated what's happening here we need to do something the U.S. had withdrawn troops out of Korea back to Japan because they they rec they didn't see it as as that there was any credible real threat that something was going to happen, and suddenly it was this massive like reversal of that they needed to change like change their position, change their footing, and start putting troops back onto the Korean Peninsula to try to shore up and to try to save save and support their allies. 
the U.S. at the same time, like through the from the, the five-year period between the end of the war, uh, the Second World War, and the start of the Korean War, they had massively, massively scaled back their military, um, which demobilization is an American tradition after war. There had been very little investment into new technology. There was very little investment into, into to training, into um, supporting and really sort of maintaining a, a large standing army. That just wasn't the case in 1950. And the Korean War changes this. The Korean War, like there's NSC 68 that comes, that's published in the early, before the Korean War starts, but it's a, a national security document that's produced recommending, highlighting that the U.S. is unprepared for a war and highlighting the need to, to make massive, massive investments. And then suddenly the Korean War happens and NSC 68 doesn't even receive any debate. It just gets signed and the, the, the military industrial complex has an absolute field day for the next 40 years. So let's talk about how many troops, it talks about they were demobilized in Korea, but how many troops actually were on the peninsula, on the southern half of Korea at the time of the invasion? Um, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't have a number for you. It was, it was not more than, I don't believe it was more than 10,000 troops, uh, American troops anyways, um, that were on hand immediately. There was, it was a very low number, uh, relatively speaking, um, when you've got half of the North Korean army that's suddenly and the North Korean army is, you know, they're, they're driving, you know, updated, modernized T-34s. Like they've got, they've got current um, Soviet equipment uh, for the time, contemporary current up-to-date Soviet equipment at the time against, I don't want to speak ill of the, the American troops that were there, but basically against reserve, like almost, almost like reservist troops. They were sitting there that were under-equipped, um, just not prepared for any kind of, uh, combat situation. Um, and the South Korean army was certainly present, but the South Korean army was not going to be an effective fighting force in the state that it was at, at that point. They were largely used by the, the regime to maintain domestic order, as opposed to being trained and prepared to fight a- Basically uh, policing, in other words. Yeah, exactly, and that's they, they they weren't they were not fit for purpose to face off against a a, a combat a foreign combat army. Hmm. What well, was it a shock when the North invaded for both the U.S. and South Korea that they came, suddenly came in out crossing the thirty parallel? It, to be honest, it was probably less of a shock for the South Koreans. Um, there had been skirmishing along the uh, there had been skirmishing almost like minor border crossings that had been happening for quite a long time, months, years even, where and escalations leading up to the actual invasion um, in June of 1950. Um, so I think the South Koreans were probably more aware of the threat, uh, but all of those calls and those pleas for any kind of assistance or warnings were falling on deaf ears at uh, military headquarters in MacArthur's military headquarters in, um, in Tokyo. MacArthur basically had surrounded himself at this point by yes men, people who were only going to tell him what he wanted to hear. He didn't, he didn't recognize that there was a threat in Korea and ignored any kind of intelligence warnings, ignored anything. It took 
from some reports that I've read, um, it took almost two days for the for things to to really be recognized as a serious major invasion, um, mm -hmm. where they suddenly needed to respond and started transferring emergency transfer of troops from Japan onto the Korean Peninsula, activation of air forces um, to be the Far East Air Force to be able to provide air support to South Korean and American units on the peninsula and just to try to slow down the uh, the North Korean onslaught. I'm going to go on the name there. I kind of compare this to the German invasion of the Soviet Union. Because, you know, as you know, Stalin as well did not want to believe. It took several days for him as well to believe that, actually realize that the Germans, they attacked even though they had a pact, non-aggression pact, they didn't break that pact. So it's kind of sounds as really similar to that when they invaded the, during Operation Barbarossa. So it's kind of doesn't sound too far off in MacArthur's I, I case. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's too much difference in any kind of a surprise attack. Um, I think that's the that's the thing about analysis. It's always 2020. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious to say it's like you can sit there after the fact and say, yeah, it was pretty obvious that they were going to attack. But there's so many other instances and so many other cases in history where it looks like there's going to be an attack and that it just doesn't materialize. Yeah. It's that, you know, it's like, what's, what's, do you prepare, do you prepare fully for every single situation, like, you know, every single possible, or is it, you know, do you, do you roll the dice and you win sometimes and you lose sometimes? So. so how quickly does it take for MacArthur to stable to send troops back to Korea and to fight start fighting against North Koreans? Within a week, there were troops move, being moved um, from from Japan. Um, actually, within days, there were troops being airlifted um, into Korea to help try to stabilize or at least to slow down and blunt the the Korean offense. Um, but it takes longer to start reactivating units uh, coming from the U.S., uh, coming from pulling from other theaters um, where they're stationed, um, the Philippines, and start moving those those troops uh, into combat positions in North Korea. In the meantime, what's happening is that 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 North Um, and that's Busan is the, the it's it's one of the the major ports. Um, it is the major port. If the, the if they lose if the allies the the U.S. the South Koreans if they were to lose Busan that's that's their major resupply port. That's their major inlet uh, ingress point into the peninsula. So that was what the North Koreans was aiming for the port. Ad, yeah, absolutely. And as as their offensive moved south, the um, South Korean and U.S. troops basically were collapsing backwards and retreating backwards towards what became known as the the, the Busan Pocket, um, which the it's a was a an area surrounding the city. Um, There's a fair distance out from the city, but it's this pocket of area like around the city of Busan protected on one side by the Naktong River. Um, so there's good good defensive positions that happened there. And the, the Allies, I'm going to refer to them as the Allies because it eventually turns into a UN operation um, where it's the, the, the UN forces basically fall back into this pocket, set up their defensive perimeters, 
and like the, the North Koreans are sitting there just breaking themselves, trying to cross and break through um, some, some of the lines to try to break into the pocket and actually force the, uh, force the Allied forces off of the peninsula. And it was pretty touch and go for quite a while. You, the U.S. was relying heavily on both tube artillery, but um, especially on air support. They were bringing up, because uh, obviously air, aircraft are easier to bring into a theater and faster to bring into a theater than mass troops with support and logistics and whatnot. So, I mean, the U.S. was very much relying on uh, close air support and even strategic bombing um, to, uh, to blunt and to really to, to try to hit and stop the North Koreans from breaking uh, through the, uh, the Busan pocket. Hmm. So before going to the type of warfare, uh, there's, you know, let's talk about the warfare first, the more kind of warfare, because it was more or less guerrilla warfare, if I remember correctly, that the North Koreans were trying to run. And what, so what, from, from probably from World War II, what, on what, what kind of warfare did the Americans have in, because I, I imagine they have experience from fighting the Japanese, right, in World War II in China and in Asia, in Asian Pacific in general. So that, so how did they learn from fighting the Japanese in in World War II, in the Korean War? Did they use any of these the techniques they learned there? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of different, there's almost like there's a couple of different phases of the war. Um, after the, the initial retreat back into the Busan pocket, they're setting up defensive perimeter, um, and it's very much a, a defensive line that they've set up. And it's about trying to use artillery and air support to break up any uh, North Korean offensives uh, that were trying to, to break that. Um, and that's very, I mean, that's a pretty standard military operation in that, like set up your defensive line and let the, en- I mean, I'm not going to say let the enemy come at you, but try to break up their logistics and stop them on, on the line from breaking through. MacArthur then sets up in October, September or October, um, basically goes ahead and plans and executes what is what is by any account one of the finest military operations that's ever taken place with the, the landings at Incheon. And Incheon is a, is a port city. Uh, it's the, the port access to the city of Seoul um, on the uh, western coast of the, the peninsula. Uh, kind of a risky and kind of a dangerous um, it was definitely a, a risky invasion, but it was perfectly conducted, perfectly pulled off. And he manages to land tens of thousands of U.S. combat troops behind North Korean lines and cuts off North Korea's uh, uh, logistics and supply access. Uh, mm-hmm. Captures Seoul not as fast as they should have. And then those forces um, coming in from Incheon seal off North Korean troops um, that are still in the south, and then they begin a, a march north, like an offensive north across the 38th parallel, heading towards past Pyongyang and heading towards the, the north the North Korea Chinese border, and that that's a there's a change that again there's a, a change that happens there, um, but what's happening is a lot of those North Korean troops in the south are, if they're deciding to fight on, then there's definitely like this guerrilla like guerrilla type warfare that's that's breaking out as some of those groups are trying to move north to try to move back into North Korean territory, um, or they're surrendering, they're being killed, captured, whatever that happens to look like. Mm-hmm. 
the UN troops moving forward towards the Yalu. That's a, a very, what should have been a standard armored, armor-led uh, mobile uh, assault. MacArthur's decision to start splitting armies into small groups and spread spread his forces very thin moving and thinner moving northwards. Uh, if you look at the shape of the, the North Korean Peninsula or the, the Korean Peninsula, as it moves north, it starts spreading out. It starts actually opening up um, and gets wider and wider. So instead of using sort of the line around north of the 38th parallel, which is where it's fairly narrow, where you can concentrate your troops and create a line, he takes the same number of troops and starts mm. diffusing them and spreading them out um, as he moves north towards the Yalu. The Chinese responded to this, seeing that as a threat to their own territory. But keep in mind that the, the PRC had only been established the, the previous year. They were still very, very nervous that the, that the Western forces were going to try to invade and try to overthrow them, try to remove them from power. And the U.S. restore its, you know, the, the KMT and Chiang Kai-shek from Taiwan back into uh, to, uh, to mainland China. So Mao commits ground troops, um, and there's this massive Chinese-led counteroffensive um, that breaks and actually creates the one of creates the longest U.S. retreat in military history. Hmm. Um, and they've come back down and they're, they're actually well below Seoul at one point before things sort of stabilize again and then things push northwards. And this is all very mountainous, um, really rough terrain, uh, similar in a lot of ways to Italy, but with much colder weather. Mm. Um, so, I mean, think of, think of what you know about the Italian campaign. I'm um, starting from 1943, uh, but with much harsher, colder, colder winters. Um, did, did the U.S. troops have the right clothing? Because as you know, that's kind of essential when it comes to winter warfare, especially winter warfare. Did they have the right clothing? Or did, did a lot of troops freeze to that? Or like, like with the Stalingrad offensive? Or did they, it was wasn't? It up and, there, was de there was definitely an equipment issue um, and a, like a logistics and supply um, provisions issue um, that happened in the initial, like from the the assault from in, from leading stemming from the landings at Incheon, up to the retreat from the Yalu, a lot of those troops were still wearing, uh, not necessarily summer weight, but they did not have, um, were not fully outfitted with uh, winter kit, so there was there was definitely, um, it's not I wouldn't put it at the same proportions, as something like Stalingrad, um, or Napoleon's. I mean, just to from, uh, have something to, to compare with, you know. No, no, absolutely. I think there's there is a comparison to be made. I don't think it's the same degree, of course, um, that Stalingrad or Napoleon's retreat from Moscow or anything like that. Uh, but certainly, there was there were a, a, quite a number of of uh, UN and US troops that weren't outfitted properly for the uh, for the weather in Korea. Well, was it the same case for the North Koreans that were they better equipped, or did they have the same issue there? Uh, the, the Chinese were better equipped. The Chinese never had s Chinese equipment. Chinese equipment was always rudimentary. Like it wasn't the U S way of war is very much, you know, outfit and make, make your soldier, make sure your soldiers are, are as much as possible are kitted properly that they have the, the, the best, the best equipment that they can, that they can have, et cetera, et cetera. 
the Chinese were relying on um, burp guns, like you know these like rudimentary, like I'm not going to say homemade guns, but very simple, simple weapons, padded quilted jackets, um, rubber-soled shoes. Like it was pretty, pretty basic and pretty rudimentary um, levels of equipment. But that's how they had been fighting um, through the, the Chinese Civil War. That that was very much a lot of the equipment and what they were used to operating with. Um, I guess there's a state of mind thing that happens in there as well. Um, but uh, and the, the Chinese, this is a, a gross generalization and people can yell at me in the comments later. Um, there's less of a, I'm not gonna say that there's no concern for the welfare of your troops, but there is less concern for the welfare of your troops than um, it's the difference between a conscripted army versus a citizen soldier army. Mm. If you have troops that are, you know, this, the, the concept of the citizen soldier, it's beholden on the military and the, and the military leadership to make sure that you're looking after the welfare of those troops. It's a mm. different attitude in terms of how you, how you look after your soldiers. So. And something we should add as well, because contrary to what many people may think, in the, for the US at least, maybe not the North Koreans, this was not a war for territorial expansion. They just wanted to keep the line, the 38 parallel where it was. And But the, I want to ask as well, and this is a what if question, but if they had completely ignored that they were not going to do a territorial a territorial expansion for the South Koreans. Do you think they would have won the war if they actually tried to cross the territory, tried to move into Pyongyang themselves? I, I would say that there was... It's, it's a difficult question to ask. I'm not necessarily like big on counterfactual. If the only opponent that the that the UN forces, that the US forces were going to face was the North Koreans, absolutely the US would have won that. But it wasn't just the North Koreans. They still they mm. had Chinese support, they had Soviet support. And the reason that, and I think what you bring up there is actually really important. North Korea, the, the Korean War itself was a, was by US definition was a limited war. It was, it was a war of containment. It was not a war of rollback. This was a debate that was happening in U.S. political circles at the time. Uh, what was the best way for the U.S. to try to "quote unquote" deal with communism? Was it to simply was it to follow George Kennan's um, line of thinking and reasoning, where to to contain, um, don't don't let communism expand any further. But if it's already communist, then you you know there's it's not an attempt to try to to remove the communists from power there. And that's really where how the how Truman ended up marking the like delineating and sort of defining what the Korean War was to be. It was going to be a limited war of containment. It wasn't about restoring or removing communism from the entire Korean Peninsula. It was about restoring that dividing line to the thirty eighth parallel. Hmm. That's that's what the, the war was about. Because again, if I, if I remember correctly, they did have troops in Pyongyang. The U.S. did have at some point troops in Pyongyang in the capital of North Korea. They did. Um, on the the march to the Yalu, the the, Alec, the, the Western troops had absolutely occupied uh, Pyongyang, and then on the the retreat from the Yalu, as they they were being pushed back south, they were pushed out of Pyongyang. Um, 
and North Korean troops reoccupied Seoul at one point. And then there was this, this sort of this, this pushback until about the summer of 1951, where the lines sort of, they weren't exactly the same position that they were in uh, at the beginning of June of 1950, but remarkably similar. Um, and that's for the, from 19, the summer of 1951 until the, uh, um, the, the ceasefire agreement in 1953, that's, the lines didn't really move a lot. There was, you know, some movement north, some movement south, and there was sort of this like waving sort of motion that happened along the, uh, the line, but it really did sort of fix itself back to um, relatively close to where it was uh, before the war was even fought. Um, so it was three years of, three years of fighting and literally millions of people killed. There's, I mean, the estimates are two and a half million Koreans died uh, through the Korean War uh, for little to no gain. But for a lot of people in, in the West and like the, the US, and if I, and I'll, I'll give you my opinion in a second, people looked at it as, a, was the war a win? Was it a loss? Was it a stalemate? What was it? It was a win based on the political objectives, mm. which was to contain communism to its pre-1950 borders, which is what they did. Mm. Massive loss, but it's it, it was a quote unquote, it was a win. Mm. The US never committed, they committed a lot of resources to it, but they never committed their full weight and commitment to it, to the Korean War. It was always this thing that was happening somewhere else that nobody wanted to go to because it was it was a pretty, it could be a pretty shitty place to serve. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a reason that people call it the Forgotten War. It, uh, it never received a lot of the attention mm -hmm. uh, that it probably deserves and that I seem to be spending more of my time looking at and thinking about and trying to, you know, talk to people about, and get people to think about the effect that Korea had. So. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about this because, as you know, the Vietnam War was heavily, uh, and people were heavily against the Vietnam War. You, you got hundreds, maybe thousands even, films about the Vietnam for Forrest Gump to, you know, to mention someone, just one movie about the Vietnam War. Here, for example, um, uh, how, what do you think made the Vietnam War so much more pop in, popular in pop culture and versus the Korean War, like you said, it's a forgotten war, more or less. That's an interesting question. I, I think... Because there's Vietnam... almost no movies about Korean War, as far as I know, that you, that anyone talks about, that people still talk about, as I said, for Jump or which is very much a Vietnam War, I would say kind of. But, you know, it's there's still been movies made set in the Vietnam War, but... Yeah. Maybe not so many, but you know, it's there's always nothing about the Korean War. I I think one of the one of the big things with Vietnam was versus Korea was the presence of independent media. Uh, Vietnam was very very heavily covered in the media. There was, I mean, there was news TV like news news correspondents and news crews with with cameras and taking pictures and filming things with little censorship and they could sort of move around the country as they wanted. And it was being beamed back live into, into people's televisions. And it was on the six o'clock news every night. Vietnam was very much present in, in the mind of Americans. 
the Vietnam War only became super unpopular in the pop in the the mass amongst the, the mass of Americans once the Americans realized that they were losing. It was a it was a popular war, like in terms of its popular in terms of its popularity numbers, small vocal minority of people that were speaking out against the war, and there's lots of focus on on the on that that movement. But there's, I mean, the, the Nixon's silent majority. Like there was a lot of people in the United States that supported Vietnam and they were comfortable with what was happening in Vietnam until it became very, very obvious that the U.S. was not going to win this. America, it's not that America doesn't like war. America doesn't like wars that they're not winning. Like that's, mm. that's a, I don't know that that shouldn't be a controversial statement. It, it may end up being one here, but that's, that's very much the truth. Um, America likes to win. <laughs> Everybody likes to win, but America's really big on liking to win. Korea didn't have that same, that same level of coverage, that same level of media involvement. Um, it was the, the, the second, when it broke out, the second world war had just ended five years before. And there was a lot of people that just really wanted to put their heads down and get back to, they didn't want to go to war again. They just wanted to get on with their lives and be, be normal. Who cared about nobody cared about Korea, this like you know, this place mm. that nobody had ever heard of that was halfway around the world and you know, spoke of, of not to put bring up well, I mean, racism certainly plays a, an impact into this as well. Like, you know, it's mm. these were Asians that you know, it's like didn't mm. spoke spoke a funny language and ate, ate, ate bad food and you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. I love Korean food, I think it's delicious for the record. Um. <laughs> But it's, I mean, that that's very much the, that's very much the, what's this difference in attitudes. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that you talk about the media. I mean, probably the most, one of the most famous pieces of mass media out there about the Korean War is the, well, it was the movie and then the TV show MASH. It was a book, but it was MASH. And even MASH wasn't a TV show or a movie. Really, it was set in Korea, but realistically, it was about the Vietnam War. It was... It was a, a, a subtle, you know, undercover way of like, you know, basically giving a commentary on American involvement in Vietnam without it being directly about Vietnam. So even the most famous piece of, you know, global media that's really out there about, in English, um, about Korea, isn't even about Korea. So um, mm. I think uh, it certainly earns the, uh, the title of Forgotten War. So let's start before going to more back to the korean war again and let's talk about the recruitment of troops in the for the u.s side because they need the recruitments and because guerrilla warfare is not easy to fight against when you're a regular quote unquote regular army that's used to fight you know different kind of warfare so how many veterans from the world war ii because as we said it was just five years after World War II, so there were must there were still some veterans. I remember reading this book about the Korean War, where there's one veteran from World War II who just came back to the US and he didn't have anything to do. He didn't couldn't settle down, and then along came the Korean War and he signed up almost immediately. Immediate. And how do we know how much percentage this was from the recruiters that came back to the US Army after Second World War, and and how many new people? that they recruited fresh out of high school or 
just didn't have any other jobs that came to join the U.S. Army. I don't, I don't have specific numbers on that. Um, keep in mind that the U.S. at the time, the select, select service, the draft was still in play. Um, so like draft numbers, they just sort of, I mean, they draft a larger pool in any given year and like scoop those, those up. Um, depending on, the, on specialist positions, uh, a lot of people, there were a lot of Second World War veterans from specialist positions. And I'm thinking like pilots um, and very, very specific, like highly skilled, highly trained specific jobs. A lot of those positions, they were recalled back to service. Um, mm. They were, they'd been mustered out in 1945, 1946, um, but they were being recalled back to service uh, to, to be able to fill needed positions that were needed immediately in Korea. Uh, well, the conscription sort of thing of grabbed in that, that bigger net of, uh, of troops. A lot of the fighting in Korea past 1951, it moves away from, there's a guerrilla aspect to it, but it was it not necessarily behind the lines so much as there's, there's definitely a front line. Um, and I mean, it might've been kind of a rough, it wasn't like, it certainly wasn't like a first world war front line where it's, you know, there's miles of trenches and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely, there's a, a, these frontline positions um, being supported by, I mean, the Americans, the American use of artillery is uh, probably rivaled only by the Russians at this point. Um, Americans absolutely rely on artillery and air artillery of close air support uh, to support a lower number of combat troops on the ground. Um, but there's very much like these this, this, these frontline positions, this frontline area where a lot of the fighting was happening. There was action that would happen behind the lines, but it was a much more limited limited scope um, than even what you saw in Vietnam. So, hmm. so let's talk about uh, POWs or prisoners of war for a second. And we're not going to dive too much into this, but you know, let's talk about treatment on both the North Korean side a little bit and the treatment of North Koreans on the U.S. side, and as you, as we talked about before the recording, there was there was attempts of brainwashing the U.S. troops, though mildly successful, you can say, on the North Korean side. There was a few, but there there was just my minority that became brainwashed by the communists. So how come they weren't so? You think that when I and I think I would too myself. I would probably be if I was a prisoner of war in in sitting in a cage and all day and being brain drilled all these lectures about communism. I think personally, I probably would be brainwashed myself. But I don't know about you. But uh, what what do you think made so few people being brainwashed as POWs when they came on the North Korean side? So. The experience, the, especially the, the initial and early experiences that POWs would go through after being captured, um, were tended to be incredibly difficult and incredibly harsh. Uh, the treatment of captured allied soldiers, like you had soldiers, mm-hmm. whether they were American, Canadian, Brits, Turkish, I mean, it was Belgian, French, whomever it happened to be. There was certainly, it was a, there was a, a very wide variety of nationalities that were represented as fighting uh, for under the UN flag in Korea. When they were captured, their initial experiences, they were often, they were, they were beaten. They were held in, as you said, they were held in cages. Uh, the food was absolutely, could be absolutely atrocious. 
As a picky person, I think it would have would have wouldn't have liked being a POW. I think it would have been a from everything that I've ever read, it was a I mean to describe it as a miserable experience is mm. actually probably a gross understatement. Um and then all of those things, and then there being oftentimes they they would they'd be wounded, um, so the medical care would be pretty poor. Um and then they were needing to be moved back from, from the lines where they were captured, being moved oftentimes not even like to like the northern part of North Korea, but moving across the Yellow and being held in China. That that happened, or they were being moved very far away from the lines. And that mm -hmm. was movement that could only happen, that would only happen at night, and it was forced marches. Um, so those those early, those early experiences would have been incredibly brutal which certainly isn't going to, it wouldn't endear me, certainly to, uh, to, to my, my captors. You wouldn't get a good Yelp review if you were a prisoner of war. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, zero out of, zero out of five stars. Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't recommend. That's, no. <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. Um, once they'd been, once prisoners had been moved back into, into camp facilities, it's not like their living standards got better. They were still being held in cages. There was still, you know, there could be random beatings. There would be these indoctrination sessions, but it's one of those things that, I mean, you can be, you can sit and be lectured about, you know, the, the, the glories of, of communism, the glories of Marxism and, you know, the, the, the plight of the working people, all these things. If you're not receptive to it, it doesn't matter how much, how many lectures you get and how many beatings you get, you're not going to be receptive to it. There were people that absolutely, you know, that that were, I won't even use the word brainwashed, but they were, they bought into the idea. But they were likely people that would have, that could have bought into the idea back home without being held in the cage, without being beaten, without, it's a lot of that, like, you know, it's a, it's your your personal experiences growing up and your personal experiences before you get to where you are that influence your political beliefs, your social beliefs, all those things. It, it, it was to me, it, to me, it's certainly not a question of, you know, were, were these people tricked into believing, uh, uh you know, the, the North Korean message? I don't think they were tricked into anything. They were probably people that were, that were, would have been, would have been susceptible to believing the message at home versus abroad, wherever. So um, the concept of brainwashing is, we've done some episodes on this. I'm um, talking about like things like Project MK Ultra, it was a CIA mm. project. The, the concept of brainwashing is, has been proven to be not possible. The idea of wiping out somebody's, somebody's belief system and then replacing them with something new, something different, like there's that, you know, and that whether that's done through beatings and being held in a cage or, you know, it's like 16 days of mm. taking acid and, you know, being given lectures mm. on weird things. Like I, I, it's, I think it's very clearly demonstrated that, uh, that these things aren't possible unless the person is already willing to believe the ideas in the first place. So, mm. Do we know if there was a sexual frustration among the POWs, like was homosexuality? Because according to the, again, according to the book I read, it seemed to be very little homosexuality in 
in the POWs, even though there was may, may have been sexual frustration. I've never read anything on this personally. Um, my initial impression would be that I'm sure there would be natural sexual frustrations and all those things that happen to because we're all human and we all mm. experience and you know suffer through that at some point in our lives probably. Um, some of us don't, some of us do, whatever. Um, but I think that that's very natural uh, in terms of, you know, do you, were there opportunities? Maybe, probably, I, I really don't know. I'm sure the, the, the guards and the, the, and the, the camps would have not been approving of it. Um, mm. And even if those things did happen, no one was gonna be talking about that when they came home anyways. The 19, early 1950s in, in the West, um, certainly in the English language. In the not English very language, LGBTQ friendly. Not, not in the slightest. That's, uh, so no one, even if things, something like that had, had occurred, um, no one was going to be particularly paying it, uh, bring, spending a lot of time talking about it, discussing that, because that, uh, that wasn't right or proper. Something I want to talk about before we go into moving on is the common people of the the vic or the victims, if you will, of the Korean War. So what was it like for them? And uh, I, and again, I will refer to this book that I read on the on the topic where the, the, this one kind of stuck with me a little bit because there was a U.S. troop, I think, that was talking about helping this old Korean lady. As she just looked at him and said, "Was like, haven't you done enough already?" Yeah, so I think I mentioned this prior. Korea saw one of the largest civilian death counts of the Cold War. It's this this myth that the the Cold War was this bloodless, you know, it's this this bloodless event where nobody died because there was no there was no shooting. Like the the Cold War was incredibly violent, and millions and millions of people died. The estimate is that anywhere from two and a half to four million Koreans died. Uh, during the cold, during the uh, the Korean War, that's a three year period. That is a that is a staggering number of people. Yeah, and some of that is through through starvation. Some of that is through deprivation. Um, a lot of that is as a result of aerial bombardment. The United States used their air force as a blunt weapon, um, conducting strategic bombing. Um, against a very limited number of strategic bombing targets. I mean, traditionally, like the idea of a strategic bombing target would be industrial centers. They would be, you know, power plants. They would, you know, the things of, you know, that sort of lend strategic resources to a country. Those were all hit and destroyed within the first month of the war. And there was, you know, it's like, so you've run out of strategic targets, but there's lots of buildings still that you could, that you could, target and bomb but people live in those but there's this need that people mm -hmm. like the, the forces need to be seen doing something so the mm -hmm. u.s was would just bombing anything that moved they were bombing any kind of building they could find does, does, and and again does this come back to the racism sorry for interrupting you a little bit but does it this come back to the racism again i'm not going to say that this was because of racism uh, but there certainly wasn't a, 
There certainly wasn't a viewpoint of upholding the Korean citizen as being this person to protect and to mm. and to, to 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 defend and to protect. That wasn't. They, they were so, in a, in a, to put it for lack of a better word, they were they were subhuman, more or less. I, I'm not going to use. I'm. I'll be honest. I'm not going to use those words. I don't think that this okay. was overt. I don't think it was overt racism. But there certainly wasn't an idea that we need to protect. We have to protect these people. It was. I mean, I'm not saying they are. Of course, they're not. They're, no, they're no. people like you. Know, of course, but just using this as a, what what they would t- thought back then. I'm just saying I don't think they are at all. Of course, but don't hate me in the comments. But uh, you know, just use an example of what they thought back at the time. I. What ended up happening was the U.S. was using B-29s, like the same. Same same bombers that they used to uh, to to bomb Japan at the end of the, the Second World War. They were using B twenty nine bombers to drop massive payloads of uh, of weapons against any kind of building that they could find north of the, uh, the north of the line of battle. Mm. Um, the estimates are that by even by the summer of nineteen fifty one, there wasn't there wasn't a single two story building left standing in North Korea. Mm. Uh, everything had just been hit, and there was another two years of that type of action that happened beyond that, where the, the U.S. was using strategic bombers um, to to attack anything and everything that they could, simply to show that they were they were doing something. This is how they were going. This is how they were prosecuting the war. Mm-hmm. What this ends up with, though, is that there's, as I said, this massive and tremendous loss of life. Mm-hmm. Um. And it really, like, it's it's one of the, it's, I think it's a tragedy that more people don't know and aren't familiar with the, the type of loss, the type of death toll that happened uh, during the Korean War. Um, we talk about, like, oh, well, it's, you know, 50,000 50, dead, like, you know, we're talking about, you know, allied soldiers, but it's more than that. It's, it's the Korean people. These are the people that you're supposed to be there trying to bring freedom to and trying to protect. And instead, it's this wholesale, wholesale massacres, for lack of a better word. Um, mm. Really very brutal, incredibly brutal experience uh, for the Korean people. Um, and it's, it's remembered as a, as a tragedy. There's... Speaking of speaking of bombing, we of course have to mention that there were talked about nuking the North as a means of an end. Yeah. And how, how do we know how close we were? To actual nuclear bombing in of the North Korean side of Korea. So, at the beginning of the war, um, in the early 1951, before MacArthur was relieved relieved of duty, uh, there was a strong movement being pushed by MacArthur to drop nuclear weapons on China, um, as China was sort of seen as the staging ground mm. for a lot of the North Korean. It was a, a it was a retreat that the North Korean troops could move back to. It was the staging ground for the Chinese groups, Chinese um, soldiers moving into Korea. There was a desire from MacArthur to to nuke chunks of Manchuria um, and you know, basically knock China out of the war that way. Um, the way that he went about advocating for that ended up with his being relieved of relieved of command because he he broke the. He was ordered not to talk about specific things by the president. He ignored that. It was a clear violation of the chain of command. He got turfed. 
the decision had been made that no, no nuclear weapons, because there was a fear of drawing the Soviet Union uh, into, into a, a general European war, that if you used nuclear weapons in Asia, then the, there's, the Soviets would have no choice but to respond. And they, the Soviets weren't going to respond in Asia, they were going to respond in Germany. And that mm. was a war that nobody wanted to fight. Um, so the idea of using nuclear weapons in 1951 had been floated. It had some traction with certain with certain groups, um, but was very quickly was quickly shelved um, and ended up in wide chain chain of command or change changes chain of command. My apologies. 1953, as Eisenhower has come into, he's been elected, replaced Truman. Um, Eisenhower actually re reintroduced the idea of the possibility of nuclear weapons. Mm. And he did it in such a way that he made the suggestions to the Soviets that he was considering the use of, of nuclear weapons. Mm. But of course, Stalin had died in March mm. and it was new leadership that, uh, that, was, that this mm. idea was being floated to. And it was a far less aggressive uh, leadership. Uh, it wasn't Khrushchev in sole control at that point. It was still that power struggle between Malenkov and and Khrushchev and Barry and those guys were still happening, mm. but it was a much softer, softer line um, that was in control in Beijing. And sorry, in Moscow, um, Beijing didn't have nuclear weapons at this point. Um, and Eisenhower's concept and like you know, sort of his idea to reintroduce the threat of nuclear weapons is actually started to what steer things towards uh, the actual signing of the uh, the armistice uh, later on in 1953. And of course, I do plan to cover the Vietnam War as well later. But this is worth—I think it's worth bringing up that even in, during the Vietnam War as well, there was talk about bombing nuking, sorry, not Vietnam, as kind of same as in Korea. Yeah, the interestingly, the the use of American use of nuclear weapons was actually considered in 1954 um, to support the French uh, while they were being. Hmm. Well, they were having their asses handed to them at uh, Dien Bien Phu. Mm. There was consideration of the U.S. providing nuclear support, uh, which was shelved again for the fear of creating a, a wider nuclear conflict. Um, and those ideas were reintroduced again during Vietnam. And again, it was always the same, the same story. If we start using nuclear weapons, if you use one, then there's a response, and like you know, just sort of turns into. There was very little scope or vision to be able to see a, how a, a nuclear limited conflict could happen without it escalating and expanding into a, a much wider conflict. I think we can all be fortunate that that didn't happen. And I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm an old man at this point. I'm 45. I, re I remember the 80s and I remember the uh, mm -hmm. sort of that, that feeling of living under the... Uh, the nuclear umbrella and the, the idea that something goes wrong and somebody somebody presses the proverbial button and uh, and we all we all go bye bye. I, I remember that still vividly from being a, from as a kid. Mm. That 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 was very real. And I think the last we've all been we've all been blessed that the last thirty years we haven't had to experience that that feeling. Mm. Um, 
I mean, to, to, derail, to derail a little bit again from the Korean War, we're kind of back in, though it's not an war of ideology, and we spoke about this before, that we're kind of back in the new Cold War with Russia at this point, I would say, that there, there is this kind of fear again. It's coming back now with the Ukrainian war, I, I would say. Yeah, I get I get this question periodically uh, through the channel. Like, are we are we are we back into a cold war? Are we? Mm-hmm. Is this just the continuation? I mean, yay, more content for you guys. That's the, the cold war <laughs> channel on YouTube. You know, come 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 check us out. It um, more content. Yeah, great. Let me get through the first forty years of this, then we'll start mm-hmm. on the second one. I, <laughs> I I very much feel that we're we have this we have similar similar conditions being created that could lead to a another cold war but it's not the same this is no. not a continuation it's 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 not exactly the same you know china uh, uh, it's this isn't you can't necessarily look at like you know the, this this conflict with china that some people want to 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 see and want to imagine and want to to foist onto us as long as there's this economic interdependence between you know the, the west and china and china and other parts of the world that then a cold war doesn't exist if those economic mm. ties are severed and if they're you know severely limited whatever that happens to look like then yes i could certainly see china as being part of that is a cold war sort of shaping up with russia that's a much closer parallel i think to that mm. but again there's there's conditions that are lacking there in that Russia isn't the power. Russia is clearly not the powerhouse that it was when it was in the, the form of the um, Soviet yeah. Union. Like it, it, it isn't this. It's still a threat. It's still very much is a threat with Putin at the helm. I would say it's there. I probably, I don't know, but to me, it's very much a threat at least still. He's, oh no, he's, he's absolutely a threat. Um, I think any nation that has nuclear weapons mm. is a threat. And I'm going to say that as any nation that has nuclear weapons is potentially a threat. Putin, like Russia doesn't have the ability to project strong power beyond his own borders. Like he's struggling. Like Russia is, is, is struggling to, to project into its immediate neighbors and that's militarily into Ukraine, politically into some of the, some of the, the, the former Soviet, the former Soviet republics, like Central Asia, the Central Asian republics, which have traditionally been like for the last 30 years have been allies, or at least friendly to, to Moscow, they're pushing back. Um, it, it doesn't, Russia doesn't have the same, certainly doesn't have the same international clout that it once had. So let's go back and the Korean War for now. Um, the, the, we talked about president change of presidency and how the, did this affect and how did they come to the truth? Because it still kind of is a truth, if, if I remember correctly. They never actually negotiated a peace. It must be one of the longest running truces in at least modern history, yeah. as far as I know. Yeah, it's the, like officially. Well, officially, the Korean War was never declared as a war. It was always it was a a police action. That was the uh, that was the official name of it, um, but it was a it was a ceasefire that was signed in 1953. Um, it was never there was never a, a formal 
peace treaty or like anything that's so technically in some ways i guess you could you could say that the koreas are still at war with each other um but eisenhower eisenhower ran part of like one of the part of his ticket that he ran on in the 1952 election was to end the end the war like american involvement and end the war in korea because mm. it was i mean it wasn't a popular war by any stretch again americans like it when they're winning but you know there's there's no winning like you know when you're sort of mm. this like this stalemate um so he runs on this ticket to end the war and he sees the threat of nuclear weapons as being a fairly effective way to do that and you know they step up you know sort of these offensives and sort of to gain as much advantage as they can one of the sticking points um actually like towards achieving an uh, a sustainable ceasefire was about how to how to deal with pow's and the exchange of pow's and bring them back and there was reluctance for the north koreans to admit that they'd done they were treating people horribly. There's this this whole thing, and it eventually happens that you know they they come to an agreement that the North Koreans are getting less support from the Soviet Union under the new leadership um, model regime that's establishing itself in Moscow, and it does come down to this this peace treaty at the line of along the line of control, which is now the the, the DMZ, which is a a phenomenal nature reserve by all accounts. Um, where the North Koreans are sitting on the, the north side and the South Koreans are sitting on the south side. And it's like the, one of the most heavily landmined areas in the world, um, but a beautiful nature reserve. And mm. there's crossing. They don't talk, Joe. It's funny, like that's the DMZ, the DMZs, these demilitarized zones that get set up between conflict areas, whether it's the sort of the, the, the Green Line in Cyprus or the the inner german border uh, when east before unification like all those all those dmzs end up turning into these like these nature zones where you know animals and vegetation all these things absolutely flourish because there's no human involvement or interaction that happens in there um because sometimes humans are absolutely the worst but um but the dmz gets established and it's this line that's sat there since 1953 that is really one of the most heavily armed borders in the world. The, the, the Kim family dynasty has uh, really entrenched itself. They've moved away from reliance or tried to, as much as possible, tried to move away from reliance on China and the Soviet Union slash Russia to stand on their, to stand on their own, like a very autarkic um, regime um, run by this, Juche is the the philosophy, and it's a that is a weird, strange, mind bending philosophy. That I mean, if you're interested, like go read up on Juche. It's uh, there's some there's some strange things out there, and that's that's one of them, in my opinion. But uh, but no, it's then then the Korean War. It sits there as continues to be one of the world's potential flashpoints. I mean, that's World World War Three could could come from could potentially come from korea we don't know that that's uh but that that's definitely one of uh, that's definitely a spot of concern and every time that sort of the the north koreans provocate and like you know they'll, they'll do something they'll fire a missile they'll yeah recently into the dmc 
I don't remember when this was, but BBC released news on Japan where there is Korea, North Korea, not launch a missile. And the Japanese are almost used to this at the point where they launch missile tests over Japan is just to provoke the Japanese in a, in a sense, in the way I look at it, that they you do that they do this missile drills, but they that they fire and they end up coming over to Japanese territory. Yeah. Since since the establishment of North Korea as a nuclear power, uh, North Korea's invested an awful lot of resources into building a ballistic missile program. And conceivably they have missiles that could strike uh, facility like U.S. facilities like in Guam, in Hawaii. There's there's reports that they've got missiles that could actually hit the west coast of the United mm-hmm. States. But South Korea is certainly obviously well within that. But Japan, Taiwan, there's there's an industrial centers across Asia that the world relies on um, that are easily within range of uh, North Korean weapons. I think that's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fear of destabilization happening in North Korea um, as a result of that, just the absolute global catastrophic damage that could happen. Not to mention, obviously, the loss of lives, but there's there's a fairly severe global impact if um, North Korea ever decides to press, their, the, press the button. So. And that's just, and the, the line didn't really change at all, did it? The 38th parallel, it's still the same as before. They, so it was kind of a pointless war, in a it, sense, when the, the line, there was no line change, it's still the same. The kind of technically, like we said, still at war and nice or lost, but uh, nothing really changed. The north was still the north, and the south is still, you know, it's south is much better now, of course. But sorry, you, so just a second, but it's still nothing really changed in, the, in terms of territory. cut out there for a second yeah yeah you did too yeah yeah sorry about that one of the biggest things that you can sort of say about the the war and i've seen this people make this argument is that the the biggest contributing thing that 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 the korea that korea got from this is is democracy and freedom in the south Mm. it took until 1988 for the military dictatorship to, to to step back and for a democratic culture to start being established and being built uh, but now in 2023, South Korea is is free. It's relatively fair. It's it has challenges, and it, there's 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 things that a lot of there's undercurrents that that exist in the country um, that if you're aware of them are quite interesting to explore. But while North Korea got famine and dictatorship, South Korea has eventually come to be a, a thriving successful member of uh, of a of a liberal liberal society in a liberal order so um that's that's hopefully that might be it took a long time but that's hopefully the the, the greatest thing that came from a lot of death and destruction north korea essentially just got kind of for the lack of a better word just stuck in time and kind of still in and time hasn't changed at all still time kind of stands still in the north it, it's a country that I, I can't convince my wife of this, but it's a country I really want to go visit. Um, I, I wonder why. I lo- oh, it's, I'm stupid sometimes. 
<laughs> I would love to see it. Like, I think it, it's one of those, and I understand that the nature of the regime, and I understand a lot of like, you know, that it really is a terrible place to go, but it's one of those places, it's a terrible place to support. But if one thing that 45 years on the planet has taught me is that people are people and people are by their nature can be very good and very kind mm. on their own terms. And it, I think that would, I would like to see, I would like to see a society that's, it's not frozen in time, but it's frozen in this weird, strange place mm. in history. And it won't last forever. It will change how that happens, when that happens, I don't know. But I would, I would love to see that right now. Mm. I think that's a great message, and let's end it there. And uh, before we go, do you have anything you want to promote? Any social media where people might find you? But I link in the description you want me to put. Uh, you know, the Cold War Channel on YouTube. Come check us out. We're uh, we've been on the air for about four years now, and we're we're finally hitting the early 1960s in terms of our rough chronology. Uh, we've moved forward and backwards a fair bit, but we spent a long time looking at the 50s and we're finally moving into the 60s and starting to get into some different things. Um, but come check us out. Uh, it's um, We think we're doing good work. We hope uh, people uh, are enjoying it. And uh, yeah, that's uh, the, Cold War, the Cold War channel on YouTube. Check us out. And you have Twitter as well, of course. Where can people find you there? I do have Twitter, but uh, I'll be honest, I try to keep that Twitter to just just myself. So, mm. I, uh, fair enough. That's the twi- twi- Twitter's for- Twitter and all of its disgustingness is uh, <laughs> is for me and is less for uh, is less for the public audience. So, fair enough. My name is Alan. We are this has been one that H twelve. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. We are also on Twitter as well under one that H twelve, and you can find us on Instagram under one that H twelve. Make sure to follow us there. If you are an Apple podcast, consider writing a review if you like this episode. Also, check out some other episodes we made. You're probably going to find something you like, I hope. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. Mm. 